I remember everything about the moment when I heard it for the first time. I must have been 13 or 14, and um, I was in my mom's car, and uh, we were dropping my friend Angel off, and we were like, pulling into a little subdivision of like, uh, he lived in like these little duplexes. And we were listening to the like WNUR at the like local college radio station. And I just remember like, um, I just remember being like tired. It was probably like dusk and we were dropping Angel off and me and Angel just both like our jaws dropping. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. It's a pretty standard approach to describe a band or artist as unclassifiable. This episode's guest, Tim Kinsella, can generally be lumped into the rock genre, but to dive deeper than that requires a lot of explanation, as well as searching for words that ultimately can't capture his body of work in its entirety. Simply put, a new release by Kinsella, be it for any one of his bands, Cap and Jazz, Owls, or Joan of Arc, to name but a few, assures you of nothing other than the fact that your expectations are likely to be dashed. Joan of Arc's newest release, 1984, is no exception, with another person taking Kinsella's place as singer entirely, as well as a comparatively more literal, direct approach to songwriting. My collar bottoms tucked inside. The first song Kinsella chose as being essential to him was English post-punk band Bauhaus's 1982 song, Exquisite Corpse. Love is but a dream. Life is but a dream. Life is but a dream. Yeah, so I first got The Sky's Gone Out by Bauhaus when I was 10 years old, which is like way too young to like hear that record and understand what it is. Um, I grew up in like a, you know, just a lot of concrete, nothing around, but there was like this one punk record store that was like, I didn't even realize at the time that it was like a destination for like punk kids from like all over, um, you know, cause this is like mid eighties and, uh, I didn't even like 
know there was other punks in the world or something. You know what I mean? Like it was just like the secret knowledge. Um, so I would go to this store and the guys who worked there like sort of helped me pick things out and it was like I mowed my parents lawn each week and they'd give me five dollars and then I could like get a used tape for three dollars and then I would like sell back I would tape it and like tape sell back the tape from the week before I had this whole system and um Bauhaus was like the one band that had a logo that I hadn't heard you know because you know, I was like a little kid, so I just tried things out according to like cool logos. And um, but they were the only like not punk bands, so it just really sort of ripped my head apart, and I just like couldn't stop listening to it. And so I chose to talk about this song because all of side two of it, of that whole record, really just like. It was sort of like, uh, yeah, it felt like the end of 2001. Like I just didn't know how to process it or what it was. Um, so I chose the song Exquisite Corpse specifically because that's where the whole side of the record sort of comes together into the weirdest collage moment. Um, and, you know, when I was 10, I didn't know what an exquisite corpse was, so I didn't know... You know, now I have a sense of the process um, that I didn't have at the time. And I think about that scream uh, at the end of it. The way he screams at the end of it is any time I've ever screamed in a song, that's the scream I hear in my head that I'm aiming for. Um, it doesn't sound like... It doesn't sound like a musical scream. And it doesn't sound like a, you know, uh, a affected punk scream. It just sounds like this primal thing. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it also helps that it's not the singer of the band that does the scream. So it's like an unfamiliar voice. Um, and yeah, the whole way it's put together that whole side of the record is really has remained the goal for everything I've made pretty much ever since. Like I think about wanting anything I make to have the effect that this had on me as a 10 year old. It's interesting to, that you picked this one in particular because it seems to me it has a lot of kinship with the music, a lot of the music you've done since, which, yeah. you know, this track in a way, it kind of doesn't sound like a rock band. I mean, it clearly it is, but you know, it's not doing rock band things. It's sort of, you know, the rhythms are different and, you know, some of the instruments aren't there or aren't th there the way you expect them to be normally. Do you think that that's, that maybe this was sort of a starting point for you approaching a lot of the music you do with say Joan of Arc that way? Oh yeah, for sure. It's like, um, when there was a, there's been, you know, Joan of Arc expands and contracts every few years. We don't even notice it's happened a lot of the time, but then we'll just like one day look up. Probably we've been loading in a few days in a row and then we'll look up and be like, damn it. Why do we have so much equipment? Like, how did this happen? And then we're like, okay, stripping back. Um, and the first time that happened 
we started our sort of alter ego band Make Believe, which was very um, consciously about having the limited palette of a classic rock band and every and being aware of like every instrument um, sort of aiming to fulfill the function that's most commonly the job of a different instrument. Um, and yeah, I think that all comes back to Bauhaus. I saw the Bauhaus reunion show in 1998 and I would have written the set list 90% differently. And it was still the best night of my life. It's like uh, everything comes back to this record. Yeah. Which sounds funny. I don't know if people make that connection. Uh, what the connection between what you what you've done and 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 this music? Yeah, I mean they're identified with such a specific aesthetic, and we don't. Obviously, we aren't like you know pretending to be vampires or anything. Well, you know, you said you were you were ten when you first heard this, and you were you know you got it at a at a punk record store. Did did you think of yourself as a punk or? You probably didn't think of yourself as a goth at that point. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't know, I don't think I knew what a goth was. I mean, you know, the mid eighties, it was like, you know, crossover between like thrash bands, like why can't metal heads and punks uh, unite was like the biggest issue in the world to me, you know, as like a, you know, 12 and 14 year old, that was like a, you know, the relevant issues on my mind. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how I, I was never very good at this is, this will sound like, um, a sort of retroactive self-flattering thing, but I was never good at like tribal membership. Like I always, uh, was sort of too clumsy and dorky to ever like, you know, when you're a kid and you go to the punk shows and there's like, the guys in front who are the most pushing the most aggressively and you're a little kid and you're like, Oh, those are the cool guys who are like really a part of it. And then you get a little older and you get the perspective. You're like, Oh, those are the guys who are trying so hard to look like they want everyone to see that they're a member, you know? And I just, I was never able to be a member of any uh, tribe very well. How big you'll be in a very while. You'll be going to school and you won't want your daddy then, will you, darling? Oh, I wish you could be my baby all the time. I wonder what the future holds. The second song chosen by Kinsella as being deeply important to his development was German band Can's Butterfly. So this, I remember everything about the moment when I heard it for the first time. I must have been 13 or 14, and um, I was in my mom's car, and uh, we were dropping my friend Angel off, and we were like, 
pulling into a little subdivision of like, uh, he opened like these little duplexes. And we're listening to the like, um, WNUR, the like local college radio station that at the time, you know, um, was, you know, that was how I think these sorts of things were, you know, you could find these things. And I just remember like, um, I just remember being like tired. It was probably like dusk and we were dropping Angel off and me and Angel just both like our jaws dropping. Um, I think just like the dissonance of that guitar chord and like the fidelity of like the recording is all just up and raw and the vocal is so raw um and then there's like this uh there's a splice towards the end of it which the leonard cohen song famous blue raincoat i used to be obsessed with how there's a when you listen to it on headphones there's like a there's an obvious splice in that song which is obviously a very different song than this but they restructured famous blue raincoat from the live take which you can just sort of hear in the tapis and like i never would have noticed that if it wasn't for the the splice in butterfly uh when i was you know 14 i don't know what year came out maybe i was 15 by then but the yeah and i remember so that splice just like ruined it was just expanded everything I thought was possible. And it, it still, I hear that song, like just the first chords. It's so, uh, primal. And like, I don't even know how to say the word funky without sound like a cornball, but like, it just has this feel that, yeah, irrepressible to me. Um, and I remember going to the record store having to go to the record store downtown, like downtown, downtown, and uh, to find a can record, and they only had Monster Movie, and being so disappointed, like, that I couldn't find, like, it felt like Malcolm Mooney's vocals just gave me permission. The whole, everything about the song just felt like I had permission to just be myself, or you know, create what I wanted to create. Um, so yeah, it was a huge song for me in terms of permission. One of the things that's interesting about this particular track is that Can were great musicians and here they're sort of more like bashing away. Yeah. Is that something that, uh, that maybe had some kind of influence on you? Not to say that you bash away. Oh yeah, but sure. I mean, you know, like the Bauhaus song, that I chose that was about, you know, I'm 43 years old, exquisite corpse and butterfly are still things I like reckon with every day, you know, like other songs I thought to talk about were all black, fa black flag and bad brains because there's like certain songs that, um, I heard when I was 13 for the first time. So I've now like been living with for like, or I don't know, younger maybe. And I've been living with for 30 years. And it's like listening to those songs is a way to understand my own evolving hearing because like what they're actually doing 
gets more and more apparent to me, you know? Um, so as a 14-year-old, you know, I, I've been... My girlfriend has this uh, Can Peel session record I'd never heard before that's been on our turntable for the last couple weeks, and it's like, I'm obsessed. I've been listening to it constantly because it's just like, whoa, there's still more there, and there's still more there, and they are such rippers. But this song is so raw. But it's like my hearing at the time wouldn't have even responded to ripping. It was like I needed that rawness, you know? Um, I was in the first version of Captain Jazz at the time, and we had 15 different songs that were all variations of open E, F, you know? So, uh, yeah, it... I needed rawness. And at the risk of babbling here, I'll say I, had, I made a connection with a friend of mine some years ago when we realized that we all had Fangoria subscriptions as kids. And we were like, we were like, God, why did we all want to see bodies get torn apart and shredded and people tortured and stuff? And then we were like, huh, maybe we are responding to the production values. And like, it was the limited budgets forced them to be creative in certain ways that just felt more real or something and we were responding to it intuitively um i don't know if that's true but i think that's definitely true for like how uh butterfly makes me feel i'm curious um so you're listening to college radio in the car with your mom was that your pick or hers (laughs) that would have been mine (laughs) um i remember you know, my mom's really into, like, Johnny Mathis um, and, like, Tony Bennett. Like, I, she probably thinks Elvis swinging his hips is, like, you know, yeah. My mom is not, uh, she's a nice lady. Um, and my dad was really into Jimmy Morrison and the Doors, as he used to call them. So he used to, he used to like it when I'd listen to Danzig, because he'd say, this sounds like Jimmy Morrison and the Doors. The third song Kinsella chose as highly important to him was composer Arnold Dreyblatt's Propellers in Love. Okay, so when I was, so I guess those first songs are both about like, you know, being around puberty and uh, discovering, learning things. And so I wanted to talk about a song from later that, you know, had a similar effect on me. So um, I saw Arnold Drebat play, I mean, even this is 20 years ago now, I saw him play at Lounge Axe. Um, Gastrodel Soul used to have a monthly night at this club Lounge Axe here, and um, they would just invite, you know, different minimalist, you know, avant-garde composer guys. And so I saw, and I would go to those every month. I was one of like, 
I remember sometimes being at the show and like there'd be like 10 of us in the audience and by the end of the night I would realize that I was the only person there that hadn't gotten on stage at some point. Um, and they were just like really, I saw a lot of really crazy things through their series. Um, things that at the time I didn't realize what a big deal they would mean to me. Um, so yeah, so I remember seeing Arnold Drayblatt play to like 10 people, but a lot of minimalism, it takes a certain effort on the part of the listener, right? Which is, it's, which is sort of what's so powerful about it is it becomes a sort of internalized experience and you have to like sort of consciously shift, like, I'm not going to be pulled along by this. I need to like submit to it or something. Um, and Arnold Drayblatt just seemed different to me. Like it was so propulsive, but also, you know, muted. It's just a totally different sound. And so I could have chosen, I sort of could have chosen any song from Propellers in Love or The Adding Machine. But um, really I chose this because years later, it's like the record I returned to. There's certain records I know, you know, I've like done so much re conscious, intentional reprogramming of my own mind that I have a lot of uh, sort of external cues for how I need to, when I need to tap into a certain element of my own mind. And this Arnold Drayblatt record really became a very important way of being that like, I never put this record on unless I'm really listening to it. And if I really need to like tap into what I need from it. Um, and that happened. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, I hope it does. I imagine everyone has the same mental tricks with themselves. Um, but yeah, just the way this record is, this song falls in the sequence there's a sort of peak concentration that hits and I know that I can do whatever I need to do when I like get to this moment. So, um, yeah, so I think it's a, it was a, a record that hit me at a formative time and very well represents that whole time for me. But then also years later emerging from a midlife crisis, it became like, one of a number of records that I use to like, uh, you know, program myself. It's funny. One of the things I think that's interesting about minimalism is that a lot of times it doesn't have highlights. Yeah. You know, like uh, a lot of orchestral, tradi more traditional orchestral pieces. I mean, you may love the whole thing, but what you're really waiting, waiting for is like, you know, the third movement, you know, where you, something that you really love happens. And a lot of minimalism sort of flattens that effect out. And, you know, you have to take the whole thing as it is. Right. At the same time, it sounds like maybe there are a few specific things in this music that sort of maybe do that for you. Yeah. This record as a whole, I've always, you know, there's certain things that like, um, there's so many, so, 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 so many self-imposed, 
limitations I've had to overcome, not just as a musician, but as a person. And I mean, maybe the longevity of, uh, you know, my creativity, says the young man, is uh, largely just that there's so much bullshit to overcome inside my own head. Um, and so like classical music was just a thing that I was, I never thought I had the right to listen to or understand, you know, like I always thought like, oh, I'm not smart enough to get that. My family doesn't have enough money and I'm not smart enough. Um, even like, you know, so much stuff, guitar scales, you know, I wasn't good enough to play a guitar in standard tuning, just like whatever. But, um, this record definitely, I chose this moment because it is middle of side two. Things get sparse right after it. And then there's a long drone. There's a key change about three quarters of the way through this. That's just like, you know, searing. Um, yeah, this is, this is the moment. That's, that's the peak. You're right. I chose the crescendo of the whole record. And, you know, this is something we were talking about um, bef- before we started talking with you uh, uh, earlier. Um, ex- the so-called experimental music and the idea that you you do things that may, as you pointed out earlier, may sort of require the listener to do some work. Um, and then other people make music, you know, just because that's what they do or because they're really trying hard that is designed to be nothing but appeal. It's like, you are supposed to like this. Come on, like me, like me, like me. And I'm curious, a lot of the the musical projects that you've been involved with over the years have really, I, I don't know that I would call them experimental. I don't know that you would call them experimental, but they don't always make it easy for the listener. And I'm wondering how much you sort of think about that or care about that. I mean, it would be so funny to say, oh, I don't think about the listener, right? Because it's like 2% of the music I make gets released into the world. And obviously there's a reason that I choose that percent, you know, those specific moments to share. But, um, and obviously there's a reason I choose to share it all, but I, there's something I would never call us an experimental band because experimental is a genre in itself which actually like negates uh you know its own meaning um not not unlike emo right like what is like there is so much emotion in soul music and funk and pop and everything except emo you know um so yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm aware of the audience, of course, but there's nothing more pathetic to me than like seeing a band that wants to be liked and that's trying to make you like them. Like, you know, it's, it's just, I feel embarrassed for them. I, I can never do that. Yeah. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. 
Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral, one of which, Out of the Blocks, was just awarded an Edward R. Murrow Award for Best News Documentary. Out of the Blocks is a uniquely immersive listening experience that emerges from a mosaic of voices and soundscapes on the streets of Baltimore. A custom tailored score colors and connects this tapestry of stories hidden in plain sight. Also available is Knock Knock, Who's There? Driven by dares, rumors, or just plain curiosity, this podcast is about opening doors and finding out who or what lies behind them. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.